Hallelujah. Father, we thank you that we can gather today and lift up that name of Jesus. We thank you that there's power in that name. I'm reminded of the the song that we used to sing in the church years ago, there's power in the blood. Lord, we thank you for that power that is still available for us today through the blood in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray that as we turn our focus now to look at your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. I pray, Lord, that you would touch our lives, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us today, that we would not go home empty-handed, but we would go home with something that we can say, I've met with God. God understands where I am and what I'm going through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. You know, I have to, uh, I I said this to them personally, but let me just say it to them publicly. you know, our, our worship team, they, they give of themselves and their abilities in a way that um, is just a little bit different than most uh, people that are involved in ministry here at Silver Creek. And Christmas Eve for them um, is just a whole bunch of services. That's, that's part of it. And uh, I just really have a deep appreciation for their ministry. And I'm so thankful for their willingness to share those gifts and those talents with uh, those in our community. Thank you, yes. Thank you very much for, uh, welcome, or for thanking them along with me. I want to finish up my series today. Uh, we've talked uh, on this series of Christmas at the movies. And, uh, you know, I have to say that there is an aspect of, of Christmas time. When my, when my kids have been on Christmas vacation, one of the things that I do enjoy doing is taking my kids to see a movie. Okay, I, I don't know what it is, but but when it comes to that vacation time and kids being out of school, uh, that's always a lot of fun to me. Uh, and we've been talking about movies that have shaped our view of Christmas uh, throughout the month of December, and some of them have been. Um, you know, just just comedies and others have had more of a serious tone to them. And today we're going to wrap up with uh, a movie that originally started as a short story. Uh, it was written in 1939, and interestingly, it was called The Greatest Gift. And that movie, of course, is It's a Wonderful Life, which was produced uh, as a movie in 1946. I'll bet you that most of you didn't realize that this movie was considered a disappointment when it came to the box office and to the finances of the movie. Um, it did not break even um, initially when it, was, uh, when it was brought to the public. And I found that really important because now we consider that movie uh, one of the, the just the, the Christmas classics that really it just has to be watched every year. Um, I posed a question on a social media post this week and, and I said if you were forced to only be able to watch one Christmas movie throughout the Christmas holiday, 
or, or throughout the entire year, you got one Christmas movie per year, what would that movie be? And, and I was not surprised to, to see that most of those that responded said that it would be uh, It's a Wonderful Life. In fact, the American Film Institute has ranked It's a Wonderful Life as its number one inspirational American film of all time. That is phenomenal. Uh, for a movie that was considered a disappointment. Let me just uh, refresh your memory a little bit uh, with some of the plot, but George Bailey was a man that was focused on helping the people of Bedford Bedford Falls instead of chasing his dreams, which were to travel and then go to college and then pursue a career. Uh, Instead of those things, he stays home to operate the building and loan company that uh, was left to him him sort of in a, in a manner of speaking. It was founded by his father. His father was a, a, a generous man who loved people but had died and now the board had given George the responsibility of running the building and loan. And then on Christmas Eve, George's Uncle Billy, which uh, you know, when you really think about this movie, he drinks on the job, okay? Uh, Uncle Billy loses the daily deposit, uh, which was $8,000. And and interestingly, Mr. Potter uh, finds, he's the owner of the, the, the bank, the primary lending institution in town. He finds the misplaced deposit, uh, and he reports the issue to the bank examiner who confirms the shortage George realizes that he is responsible for this, uh, this, and he'll be held responsible, and that more than likely he's going to be convicted and he's going to go to jail, which will then allow Mr. Potter to literally be in complete uh, financial control of the entire community. And uh, George, real, this realization, it hits him so hard that, that he begins... Um, to think that his family and the community would be better off if he had never been born. And his placement on the bridge, okay, in the beginning of the movie, lends itself to you and I to think he's going to jump, okay? So it, it gives us that feeling that he is so desperate that he is willing to take his own life, but in answer to his prayers and the prayers of his family, God sends this, this kind, lovable angel named, what's his name? Clarence. But when you say it, you have to say Clarence. You gotta, you gotta say it like Jimmy, Clarence, okay? From now on, just say it like that and people will understand. So Clarence is sent into George's life and, and Clarence jumps into the water. Okay, so you realize just how bad of an idea it is for George to be standing on the bridge and we think he's going to jump and Clarence jumps first. Clarence is fine and George does like a swan dive and actually dives into the water in order to save Clarence's life. Clarence really knew that George was, was a person that loved people, wanted to help people, that he would, he would immediately think of someone else ahead of himself, and so, so he saves uh, Clarence's life there and, and helps him get back. And so uh, what I want to look at today is I want to I wanna look at six lessons 
that you and I can take away from this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and that, that we can really apply them all year long. And it, it, it doesn't have to be specifically, of course, about Christmas, but these are some real, uh, some of these are pretty, I, I think they, they can even be heavy. Uh, but number one, if you're taking notes, there's, there's a sheet of notes in the bulletin for you. Uh, but number one, can't resolve everything. Now, when I sent my notes to Kay, she said, did you type this right? Is this what you meant? To? Yes, it's what I meant to say. Can't resolve everything. You don't have to put every word in there. Can't resolve it, okay? Sometimes you just can't resolve everything. And I don't know about you, but I love a story that ties up all the loose ends and it has a feel-good, uh, live happily ever after feeling to it. Is anybody else like me? Thank you. The rest of you, I think either you are diabolical or you are lying this morning, okay? Because who wants to watch a movie that ends badly? Where, where, where the, the hero is not, you know, coming through in the end. But, but I, that's the kind of movie that I like. Um, author Bob Welch actually wrote a book, and it, it was, it was I, I haven't read it, I haven't seen it, but I, I've read about it. It's actually 52 lessons that you can take away from It's a Wonderful Life. So he's broken it down so that every week of the year, there is a lesson or a takeaway that you can you can try to implement into your life uh, from It's a Wonderful Life. And here's what Welch says. He said that in the 1940s, the motion picture production code, now, I didn't realize there was such a thing, but the motion picture production code, okay, uh, it definitely stipulated that criminals in the movies must be punished for their crimes. So when you write a movie in the 1940s, a person who is committing a crime has to be seen as, as being punished for those crimes. Mr. Potter is never punished for his crime. So this movie is breaking all the rules when it comes to Hollywood. And, and I don't know about you, but I like it in the movie when the bad guy gets what's coming to him, when he gets the justice that he deserves. Mr. Potter, who is the villain of the movie, finds the deposited money, or the, the deposit money, and he, that's misplaced by Uncle Billy. And here's what I find really interesting. Although Mr. Potter is accusing George Bailey of all sorts of inappropriate management practices, and he is accusing him really of stealing. It's Mr. Potter who was the thief. Are you with me? It's not just that he was a miserly banker in the community. He was a thief himself by keeping that $8,000. He knew who it belonged to. And I would even say this, had Mr. Potter returned that money to Uncle Billy or to George, the movie would have been over in 10 minutes. It's a time saver. It's a time saver. But that's not what happened. George was so devastated that he, he literally thought about suicide. Think of that. And, and that is a, a, something that, that it, it's, 
It's a tough reality to think of in this movie that somebody is thinking of ending their life. Potter was an evil man. Here's the life lesson. Number one, life is not always fair. You may have had things that have happened to you this past year and they were not fair. There are always going to be Mr. Potters in the world that could do something to change the situation, but they refuse to do so. We have to realize that that sometimes is reality. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, this Old Testament prophet, he said this, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. The problem is that you and I want to see them punished before the movie is over, only the movie is our life, our circumstance, our situation. But let's face it, sometimes that's just not it. We, we do not see the, the situation resolve itself the way we want to see it resolved. So then what do we do? Do we trust God that God has everything under control, that God has an eye on everything? Or do we say, you know what, I'm going to go after this myself and I'm going to make sure that the bad guy gets what's coming to him? As badly as we desire to see justice or even vengeance, we may never see it in our lifetimes. Paul reminds us that it is God alone who will repay those who do evil. We can't resolve it. We have to leave it ultimately in God's hands. And if you look for that vengeance yourself, you will be frustrated and it will not be something that brings you peace or joy in your life. Lesson number two, you can be money rich and people poor. In the final scene of the movie, we see a stark contrast between our hero, George Bailey, and Mr. Potter. One man has a bank full of money. The other man has a house full of friends. Clarence the angel writes to George, Remember, George, no man is a failure who has friends. I love the toast that his brother gives to him there in the final moments of the movie where he said, hey, I want to offer a toast to my little brother George, the richest man in town. That is a fantastic thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse number 10, I lost my place. 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Friends, money is neither good nor evil. It can be used for both, but in itself it is amoral. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Compare that to what Proverbs says, that a friend loves for all time. He's there with you in no matter what you go through. George Bailey lived his life in service to others, even in times of adversity. And money will not guarantee you or I real friendship, but real friendship is a richness in your life. 
And it's possible to have lots of money and no friends. But if you have friends, you have something that God has blessed you with. Number three, desperation opens doors. George Bailey encounters more than one desperate situation in his lifetime. The first one comes early, much earlier in his life uh, when there's a run on the bank. George faces it head on and his wife volunteers their money for their honeymoon, which was $2,000, to help get them through the run in the bank. Now, I, I thought about this, and I, I'll tell you what, gentlemen, um, boy, I know why George didn't immediately offer the money himself, because that probably would have cost him a divorce on the same day he got married. But his wife offered that money up, and they... They gave people uh, from their own funds in order to make it by. George faced that thing head on. It was a desperate situation. As a result, he won the hearts of many people from their community. And now on Christmas Eve, he once again finds himself at desperation's door. And I love the fact that, that with this movie being produced in the 1940s, they were not afraid to pray right in the middle of the movie. And he said, dear father, dear father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way, show me the way. George Bailey was out of answers, but his heart was open to God's miraculous intervention. We read a story in Mark chapter five about a desperate woman. This woman has had a condition for the past 12 years where she is bleeding. Now, I can't tell you the exact nature of the disease. I can only tell you what the scripture says, but she has been bleeding. It's called an issue of blood for the last 12 years. And in the Jewish community, you have to understand that blood is different than it is here in our culture, in our community, okay? Um, we went, you know, when, when, a, when a guy cuts his finger on the work site, what does he do? He puts duct tape around it or he glues it, you know. Uh, we don't even want to go get stitches, you know. We'll, we'll, put a, we'll put a paper towel around it and that paper towel will get soaked in blood and we don't want to take time to stop what we're doing. In her community, by bleeding, you were, you were literally considered unclean. In other words, you could not go to the temple to worship if you were unclean. And in fact, others that might be in the community that wanted to go to the temple that were ceremonially clean, if you touched them, they would be unclean. And so you were actually forced to let people know that you were unclean so they could stay away from you. The lepers were unclean. They had to literally cry out, unclean, unclean, so that people could part the way so that they would not be touched. This woman, her situation was very similar in Mark chapter 5. She would have had to have let people know that she was unclean. And she, the Bible says in Mark 5, she had spent all her money on doctors. Now, if you spend all your money on doctors, but you are cured, you'd say it was worth it. But if you spend all your money on doctors, you are not cured. In fact, you are getting worse. You're at the bottom of the barrel. 
She was desperate. She had no answers. She did not know what to do. And she thought to herself, I've heard that Jesus is coming. If I can just find a way to press through the crowd and touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. She was desperate. She was desperate. I want you to see that the the object of her desperation, the answer to her problems has now shifted. She's, She's tried everything else. She's tried every doctor. She's tried every home remedy. She's watched every commercial on TV that says buy this product and your problems will go away. She has sent away for those things and they have not helped her. She has tried everything. And the only thing left is Jesus. You know, sometimes I think we need to start with Jesus and it would save us a whole lot of heartache. I imagine her walking through that crowd, not like everyone else, because she might have been recognized, I don't know, but I think of her really zooming in on, on Jesus, the hem of his garment. And I, I almost view her as not standing upright. I view her as either hunched over or on her hands and knees just chasing the edge of that garment through the crowd until finally she was able to reach out and get her hand on that garment. Her desperation drove her to do something that was not socially acceptable. And Mark 5.29 says this, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Facing a desperate situation forces you and I to take an action eventually that is based in faith to reach out and touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Now, I don't know if you're facing a desperate situation today, but if you are, I assure you that the same power that was available for her is available for you and I. But we've got to get desperate. We got to get desperate to the point where we've, we've tried, you know, I, I don't want us to have to try everything else, but we've got to realize you can try everything else, but Jesus is the one that we need to be after. That's what we need to pursue is the power that ultimately he has. He reveals to the woman that her faith is what brought about her healing. I think that's very interesting. Jesus doesn't say, hey, yeah, it was my power that healed you. He said it was your faith. When we get desperate, we got to get to that point where we can have faith in Jesus to say, God, heal me, touch me, change my circumstance. You might find yourself in that desperate situation which requires faith in the power of Jesus. I hope that you will desperately reach out for him. Number four, Number four is hindsight is twenty twenty. As the result of Uncle Billy losing the deposit, George is pushed to the very brink. He's tempted to take his own life. He wishes that he had never been born. Clarence, his guardian angel, plunges off the bridge into the icy water below, and, and George does that beautiful dive into the water after Clarence, averting uh, his own death. 
And, and God then answers George's prayer and he sees the town and he sees life, what it would be like there in Bedford Falls if he had never been born. And this experience brings George to a place where he has a new perspective. Clarence says to him, you see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it all away? At the end of the movie, George is back on the bridge again and he cries out to God and he says, I want to live. I'll be honest with you, that feels like a salvation moment to me. That feels like a come to Jesus moment in George's life. I want to live. You know, our view of life can be so limited. We tend to see only the portion that we're in right now. Sometimes, Major events, they let us see life in a little bigger scope. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes it's a wedding. Maybe it's the birth of a baby. It could be a death experience or near-death experience. But sometimes there are events that that let us see life with a, a bigger view. But let me tell you something. That fades really fast really fast. I don't live every day thinking that I died last January. It, it, that, that feeling fades very quickly. Now, on occasion, I will have a thought before I have that third piece of bacon. <laughs> Should I really do this? But that feeling does not stick with you all the time. Do you, you see what I'm saying? We see life in a, in a very small segment. And it's almost like it's in a vacuum and we just see it in the very here and now. And when that here and now is suffering, it, it's, it's a very difficult perspective for us. David said this in Psalm 37, 25. He said, I was young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Now David had the, the benefit of perspective. He said, I, I was young and now I'm old. Okay? And you say, but this guy's the king. I mean, I, I, I've done plenty of study on David. His income was, was like lottery income, like the, big, like the billion dollar lotteries that we've, we've started to see. It's that kind of income. But let me tell you something. David was at the bottom of the barrel numerous times in his life. In the caves of Adullam, he wondered, God, why am I even here? How about when his own son Absalom came after him? And how about when his kids, he had, he had one, uh, one of his sons that had, that had taken advantage of his daughter. David knew what it was to be on the very pinnacle but also to be at the bottom of the barrel. And he said, I was young, uh, now I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. He was saying God is faithful when we take a view of life that is not just in the moment of suffering. When we see the big picture, we see God's faithfulness. You and I need to have that, that view. Whether it's in failure, success, tragedy, or triumph, whether it's in our lives or the lives of the next generation. Don't look at it as just one singular moment in time. 
Number five, there is purpose. George failed to see the purpose of what was happening in his life in the midst of his crisis. The failure caused him to lose sight of the purpose of his entire life. He could no longer see the impact that he had on his community, on the people, of his, even his own family. And then after Clarence was able to show him what life would have been like without him, he finally comes back to that place where he no longer cares what happens to him. He says to Clarence, please just get me back to my wife and kids. He says, please God, let me live again. He realizes that his, his purpose in the grand scheme of things, but we often look at our, our purpose in that small vacuum of our time of suffering or the moment that we're in right now. And it's hard to see it in relation to the past or the future. We simply know what this moment is like, which brings up the question, what is our purpose? We always tend to go to Jeremiah. And it's a great verse, and we've talked about it many times. He says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. And it's true that, that God loved you and I so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. But God's ultimate plan is not limited to his plan for your life. In fact, it's not about you or me. God's plan is so much bigger and our lives just fit into his plan. Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says this, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. His plan for our lives fits into the, the purpose that he has for all mankind. We just see the sliver, and it's the sliver that has to do with us. Me, at this moment. But I want you to know that God's plan is so much bigger than just you or just me. We're part of it. God has a plan and a purpose. It's so much bigger, and we have that privilege of being part of it. Thank you, Lord, for that. And number six, be thankful for the little things. As the movie draws to a close, George is returned to himself. He's running through town. I, I love this part of the movie. He, he stops and he, and he looks at his car, which he, he was so angry about his car and hitting that tree. He, he stops there. He, he, is, he just can't believe it. Um, he keeps running through town and he's saying Merry Christmas to everything and everybody. He's even talking to the buildings. Did you notice that? He's, he, ta he talks to the movie theater. He, he, he says hi and Merry Christmas to the movie theater, to the Emporium. He goes by the, the building and loan company and he, and he wishes that Merry Christmas. He gets home and notice when he walks through the door how he responds. The authorities are literally, and, and remember he goes past the bank 
and he beats on the windows and he says Merry Christmas to Mr. Potter. That's the last we see Mr. Potter in the movie. There is no justice that we see. And yet with joy, he says Merry Christmas. The authorities are waiting to arrest him. He busts into the house. And what, what does he say? Hello, Mr. Bank Examiner. He said, I'll bet you're here to see me. He said, Merry Christmas. I'm going to jail. Isn't it wonderful? Come on. This guy's got to be nuts. He's thankful for the old drafty house. He hears the kids upstairs. And he takes off up the stairs and he puts his hand on that knob on the banister that he's been so angry about. And it comes off and he holds it in his hand. And he's so thankful for that broken banister. He goes and he takes his children in his hands, in his arms, and he kisses his children over and over again, telling them how much he loves them. His wife comes into the house. He doesn't care about anything else that he's, that's going on. He just knows that the loves of his life are there with him, and he embraces them, kissing them, telling them how much he loves them. His actual situation has not changed. Only his perspective has changed. That's a powerful truth that you and I need to get out of this movie. You see, sometimes we are so in our heads and we are so focused on the problem that we can't see all of the blessings in life. That our family that is right there with us at this moment, that is the real love of our lives. There's so much that God has blessed us with. And we think to ourselves, man, this life is so hard, I wish I'd never been born. We can face troubles that are that difficult. Maybe that's what you faced. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You say, man... Hollywood just, they just, they were over the top. This isn't really how it is. Friends, Paul learned to give thanks in every situation. Whether he had plenty or whether he was in want. He faced persecution. He faced shipwreck. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was given lashes. And yet he was able to thank God. We need to thank God for the little things. And those little things are really the big things. You see, because we're with them every day, sometimes we lose sight of that. So as we close out 2018, getting ready for 2019, maybe you have a desperate situation, but no hindsight. Maybe you're struggling to see God's bigger purpose for your life. You want to be thankful for the little things, but you're wondering, will there be any justice? I want to tell you something that I've come to realize about this movie and the title of this movie 
It's a Wonderful Life is not, is not the statement that you make at the very end of life after you've weighed out all the good and bad. And if there's enough good things, you can say, it's been a wonderful life. It's a Wonderful Life is a declaration that you make right now in the middle of it. Even in the face of desperate situations, you declare it. It's a wonderful life, and God has blessed me with so much. And today, if you're struggling, I want you to know that he is here for you. I want you to know that even if you wish you'd never been born, God is here. It's not unreasonable to think that in a group of this size that there may be somebody that has struggled with thoughts of suicide. I want you to know God is here and he is here for you. Would you bow your heads? Father, I thank you. I thank you for all the blessings that you provided for us. I thank you that in this moment, just simply using a Christmas movie that we can be reminded of what you've done for us. Father, I pray for that person that's struggling right now. Maybe they're, maybe they're struggling ultimately, even, even to the point where they they, they've even really considered taking their own lives. Father, I pray today that, that right now they would feel your Holy Spirit. Father, maybe someone is going through a desperate situation in their own life. I pray, Lord, that they would today, they would realize that, that the sum of life is not this moment and that there are so many blessings that you have placed on our lives, and that you have a plan and we fit into that plan. Father, I pray a spirit of encouragement today. I pray, Lord, for a spirit of peace to enter into their hearts. In this quiet moment between you and the Lord, if you're struggling in a desperate moment, I just want to pray with you before we close our service. With every head bowed and every eye closed, just nobody looking around. Let it just be time between you and the Lord. If that's you, I, I want you to feel the freedom to just slip your hand up real quickly. Yes, yes, yes. Anybody else? You can put them down. Anybody else? Yes, thank you. Let's stand, shall we? Father, I pray that today they will sense that you are here for them, that your spirit is present that you are aware of their desperate circumstance. I pray, Lord, that even if they, they know all the, the, the Bible verses, they know all the truth, but yet their heart still feels broken, that today they will have a moment of touching the hem of your garment.
In just a moment, we're going to sing, worship the Lord as we close our service. But I want to open these altars on this last Sunday of 2018. And if you'd like to make the transition into 2019 and to leave anything at the altar, I just want to open the altar up. If you'd like to pray, if you'd like to to come and say, God, I want to give you my circumstance, my situation, whatever that is, I don't know what it might be, but I want to open up this altar. Just to make it a little bit easier, I'm going to invite Anybody that's one of our connect group leaders or our, our deacons or their, their spouses to just come and stand here at the front to be able to pray with you. I'm going to invite them to come even now. Don't hesitate. Don't pause. Just begin to move. And as we close and as the worship team leads us, I just want to invite you. If you want to close out this year and, and, and make sure that you've, you have that right perspective, I want to invite you to come and allow us to pray with you as we close out this year. As the team leads us, you come.